Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. Now, if you're not sure where Morbidly Beautiful is, go check out that website for all your pop culture horror needs. From things such as reviews and interviews to top ten lists and retrospectives, they're doing a whole bunch of great stuff for the holiday season, so I highly suggest checking it out before it's too late. Of course, it'll always be archived, but nevertheless, go check it out. With that said, we do have another stop on our tour of the eerie United States, and today we've hit Illinois. Now, Illinois is home to, obviously, Chicago, the Windy City. It's a little bit more of a northern state, a midwestern state, if you will, but it also houses one of the most notorious histories in terms of serial killers. I'm talking about a man who was born on May 16, 1861. His name at the time was Herman Webster Mudgett. That name may not sound extraordinary in any way, but how about the name H.H. Holmes? Now, if you are a true crime buff or a serial killer junkie or one of those people who just are fascinated by the real-world macabre, then you would know H.H. Holmes is possibly... America's very first serial killer, potentially even predating Jack the Ripper. And I say potentially for one reason, because we're not 100% sure when he committed his first murder. He did confess to 27 murders, however, only nine could be plausibly confirmed. And several of the people he claimed to have murdered were still alive. So the guy was kind of a liar. A little bit more history on good old Herman here. As a child, H.H., or Herman, at the time, was a very intelligent young man. He showed interest in medicine and sciences, and eventually did attend medical school, where he was kind of a mediocre student, which kind of goes with being a psychopath, which I assume this guy was. I mean, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything of that sort, nor do I have the qualifications to make that sort of diagnosis, but... He does give some signs, obviously being a serial killer is one, having high intelligence is another, and kind of failing at society or institutionalized learning, which a lot of psychopaths apparently have. Great liars can get in the door of any business, any school, but ultimately can't succeed because they don't know the work, they don't listen, they don't comprehend. It's a whole emotional thing, they don't have the empathy or sympathy to really kind of latch on to what learning really is. In fact, in 1884, he was nearly prevented from graduating when a widowed hairdresser accused him of making a false promise of marriage to her. Now, I didn't know that was such a serious offense, but given the time, it's not overly surprising. Now, in 1866, Holmes, still going by the name of Mudgett, moved to Chicago and took a job as a pharmacist under the name Dr. H.H. Holmes. Soon after, he would begin, well, killing people. He did this in order to steal their property. He was also known as a bit of a con man, and by the time he moved to Chicago, he was already wanted for various frauds and cons he'd pull off in other states and cities, so he was always on the move. 
kind of like a hitchhiker moving from town to town, a drifter, if you will. As I said, eventually he ended up buying the drugstore in which he worked. Now, it is a myth that he killed the owner of the drugstore to take over and get some insurance money and become owner pretty much for free, but that's not entirely what happened. Sometime after he gained control of the drugstore, he bought an empty lot across the street, where he began construction in 1887 of a two-story mixed-use building, with some apartments on the second floor and a retail space on the bottom floor. But before I get into that, that, <laughs> that piece of construction, which has a very dark history behind it, let's talk about some of his earlier victims. But before I do that, I kind of want to point out something here. There is a reason I don't often look at serial killers on this podcast. I don't feel they need to be sensationalized. They're horrible, disgusting, despicable human beings who don't deserve any attention whatsoever. But considering the legend that goes along with it, I'm going to make an exception here, obviously. But that means I'm going to really dive in as much as I can to the victims. Because those are the real people in these stories who deserve the attention. And it is going to break a little bit of the chronology of this episode a little bit, but I think it's important, again, to really go over at least the nine confirmed victims. The Pitzel family were known as some of his victims. Father Ben and his three children, daughters Allison, Nellie, and his little son Howard. The family was killed during the fall of 1894. Instead of using a cadaver, Holmes used former business partner Ben as part of an insurance fraud, Holmes knocked Ben out and killed him by setting him on fire. On July 15th, 1895, Alice and Nellie's bodies were found in a Toronto cellar. Later, authorities found teeth and pieces of bone among charred ruins that belonged to Howard in an Indianapolis cottage that Holmes had rented. Of Holmes's assumed victims, there were Julia and her daughter Pearl Connor in 1891, Emmeline Sigrand in 1892, and sisters Minnie and Nanny Williams in 1893. Minnie had married Holmes, and he eventually swindled her out of her inheritance. As I said, he was also a con man. This guy was a piece of human trash. Just throwing that out there. He was garbage. The bodies of Julia and Emmeline and Minnie and Nanny were never found. But rumor had it Holmes had probably sold their cadavers to medical schools. He had consistently stated that Julia and Emmeline died while undergoing illegal abortions. Julia was allegedly Holmes' lover, and Emmeline was Holmes' former secretary, whom he later purportedly proposed to. While searching Holmes' hotel, the one we're going to get to in just a little bit, authorities recovered Minnie's watch and Nanny's garter belt in one of the ovens. Although forensic evidence was rudimentary at the time, bones found in the basement most likely belonged to 12-year-old Pearl Connor, whom he allegedly poisoned. As for Emmeline, the police believed that they had come upon her hair and bones. One account claims that an eyewitness saw Holmes and a janitor haul a big trunk the day after her disappearance. Again, there is a lengthy list of potential victims, 27 as he confessed to, and some even state it was well over 200, although that is quite an exaggerated claim with no real evidence backing it up. But now how about that hotel we were talking about? Remember when I said he bought an abandoned building, or a multi-use building, rather, across the street from the drugstore he worked at. Well, that piece of land he eventually decided to turn into a hotel. And right from the get-go, this place was a disaster, to say the least. He refused to pay the architects and the steel company who provided the equipment and gear and 
building materials for the construction, and he was sued for it. In 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World Columbian Exposition. Furniture suppliers found Holmes was hiding their materials, for which he had never paid, in hidden rooms and passages throughout the building, which were a little peculiar. If you think about it, there were soundproof rooms and mazes of hallways, some of which seemed to go nowhere. Many of the rooms were outfitted with chutes that would drop straight down into the basement where Holmes had vats of acid, among other corrosive materials. He would use these purportedly to dispose of victims' bodies. Now, the search for these missing materials made the news, and investors for the planned hotel pulled out of the deal when a jeweler in the building showed them the articles. The hotel was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested, but was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. Some other tidbits about this little hotel. As I just mentioned, parts of this hotel didn't make any sense. And I'd read things in the past, and this is why I really got interested in this hotel, was because it was designed for you to die. Hotel hallways that led nowhere. Some even played tricks on people's minds where the hallways would narrow or shrink at certain points. There were doors that led to brick walls. There were doors that led straight outside. There were rooms, as mentioned there, with chutes, so people would simply fall to their demise into a vat of acid or into a basement where Holmes would have his way with them. The design and the sheer size of this building, though it didn't quite compete with that of the skyscraper, was still very imposing and intimidating, and that's where it got the nickname The Castle. And it was named as such because it took up nearly an entire city block. As mentioned, false basements and wooden bay windows were covered in sheets of iron. One of the weird things I was mentioning. The castle boasted a cellar and three floors, the first of which was open to the public. Thousands of people would pass through street-level shops, some operated by homes and some leased to local merchants, without a clue of what was going on on the grounds or below them. When the castle was completed in 1892, Holmes announced that he would rent out rooms to tourists arriving en masse for the upcoming World's Fair, or also known at that time as the Columbian Exposition. Most of the third-floor rooms were comfortably furnished and nondescript. However, that is assuming that the guests could actually find them. Rooms were scattered among odd angles, narrow corridors with poor lighting, and widely spaced gas jets on the wall. Dead ends and stairways that led nowhere were interspersed, with locked doors to which only Holmes had the key. One of the locked rooms was adjacent to Holmes's personal office and contained a walk-in bank vault that had been modified to include a gas pipe. Only Holmes could control this particular gas flow via a hidden panel in his bedroom closet. I should note here that, despite it not ever being fully completed, most of it was, but it was never really put into use. Also, he used multiple construction crews and never showed them all the same blueprints. That does attribute to some of the weird angles and the weird rooms because nobody was working off the same plans, and he did this on purpose to throw people off. He didn't need architects or construction workers to start asking questions about why there are dead ends and weird things in general going on with the hotel. Now, the second floor of the hotel was even more confusing, containing 51 doors and 6 hallways. 35 rooms were ordinary bedchambers, but others were either airtight and lined with asbestos-coated steel plates or completely soundproofed 
in general. Some were tiny with low ceilings no bigger than closets. Most of these rooms were rigged with gas pipes connected to the same control panel in Holmes's closet and equipped with special peepholes. Many were fitted with alarms as sounded in Holmes's quarters if a guest, quote-unquote guest, tried to escape. The castle's second story also contained trapdoors, secret passageways, hidden closets with sliding panels, and most terrifyingly, a large greased shaft leading directly to the cellar, as we already discovered. Brick-lined and dark, the cellar was comparable to that of a dungeon, and the various apparatuses stored there only added to the terror, and that is not even including that acid tank and other corrosive materials that we discussed before. Also discovered in this basement was a contraption of Holmes's own invention. He called it the Elasticity Determinator. Now you can only guess what that would do to a person. He claimed it could stretch experimental subjects to twice their normal height, eventually creating a race of giants. When it was found, again, people and police compared it to that of a medieval torture rack. So did anybody actually stay in the hotel? Well, according to some reports, yes. Holmes used two major pretenses to lure guests who checked in and never checked out. First, he advertised lodging for tourists visiting the World's Fair. Secondly, he would place classified ads in small-town newspapers offering jobs to young women or outright offering himself for marriage. In fact, Holmes was married several times, often to more than one woman at once, using different aliases. Again, con man scumbag. Because of the World's Fair and then unsophisticated police procedures, missing persons were barely investigated. Holmes' innate charm could smooth over any remaining questions from neighbors and families. Over time, he claimed that his female assistant went out of town to visit relatives and ended up staying. His fiancée eloped with somebody else in secret, and he administered a botched abortion to a girlfriend that unfortunately took her life. We discussed her a little bit ago. The reality was, of course, much more gruesome. Upon investigating the castle after Holmes's arrest, which was for something completely unrelated, such as insurance fraud, police found the aforementioned rooms, as well as a human-sized kiln that heated up to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and a wooden box containing several female skeletons. In fact, one of Holmes's main associates, who was called Charles Chappelle, was also an articulator, meaning he could strip flesh from human bodies and reassemble the bones to form complete skeletons. Apparently, Holmes would frequently pay Chappelle to articulate a cadaver, then either keep the skeleton or sell it for profit at a medical school. Now, I did discover a few more details about Emmeline Sigrand. She was described as a bright young woman from Indiana who became Holmes's personal secretary. After accepting Holmes's marriage proposal, Sigrand disappeared into thin air. This is one of the more disturbing stories. Holmes claimed she ran off with another man, but around the time she went missing, Holmes asked two male guests of the hotel to help him carry a large, heavy trunk to the cellar. Soon after, Holmes sold a fully articulated female skeleton to a nearby medical school, and during their investigation, police found a woman's footprint clearly etched into the floor on the inside of the cellar's vault. Holmes later confessed to locking Sigard in the vault and raping her before taking her life. He then shipped her trunk full of clothes and personal belongings to her family without explanation. At least one child perished at Holmes's hands. And that, as we discussed, was Pearl Connor. 
she was chloroformed and suffocated in her castle bed. I can't say this enough, but H.H. H. Holmes was a disturbed individual. Disturbed doesn't really even do it justice. He was the epitome of what it is to be subhuman garbage. I know I don't often get too emotional and I don't get too personally invested into these sort of stories, but when I look into serial killers, I can't help but think, why and how? How did society let somebody like this go on for so long without any sort of investigation? Why was he compelled to do the heinous, horrible acts that he did? Well, he did have a quote, and it's a chilling one. I'm going to give it to you right now. I was born with the very devil in me. I cannot help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to song nor the ambition of an intellectual man to be great. The inclination to murder came to me as naturally as the inspiration to do right comes to the majority of persons. While that is a bit of a noble statement, and he's taking full responsibility for who and what he is, it doesn't change the fact that he did do what he did. It also raises very interesting and controversial topics, such as are people like H.H. H. Holmes or Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy born the way they are, or were they shaped by society? When I was in university, we looked at a case featuring a young child. Now, I don't remember the exact name of it. I wish I could. I don't have those notes. This was a long time ago, and I wasn't the greatest student in the world, so forgive me. But we looked at this case of a young boy. He had a brother, I believe, or a sister. And they were both relatively close to the same age, around between three and five, we'll call it. But the boy was almost pure evil. He didn't know why he was doing the things he was doing, but he did them anyway, such as sexually assault classmates. He was just a kid. He didn't know what those parts were or what they were supposed to do, but he couldn't help but stick things, his fingers, objects, into other girls' genitalia. He was obsessed with torturing and destroying toys, and if he ever got a hold of an animal, he wouldn't let it go, and not in a good way. His upbringing was identical to that of his sister and other kids around him. He wasn't poor, he didn't have any socio-economical backgrounds that would kind of lead somebody into the life of crime, yet he did it nonetheless. I remember one of the questions they asked him, not exactly, not verbatim, but I do remember... One of the things he was asked was, why does he do this? A simple question. And he didn't have a direct answer. All he could muster was, he wanted to. He just felt like he needed to. And that kind of gave a little bit of credence to the fact that maybe he was born that way. There were potential brain issues, mental instability. It can happen. It's a chemical imbalance. But I don't remember if there was ever any more detail into that aspect of it. I don't remember if they did MRIs or brain scans or anything like that. In fact, I can't recall when this took place. I was in school for this roughly 10, 11 years ago, so it predates that. Anyway, I'm thinking it was probably close to 30 years ago when this study was done, probably around the same time of Little Albert. And if you don't know what that is, look that up. I'm not going to get into it now, but it's pretty much a torture test on a small child to make him afraid of everything. Fun. The world is full of terrible people and places, and that's why I'm here to look into some of them. Now that is all I have for you today. 
If you do like what you hear on this podcast, feel free to drop a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Either one will do, and I would appreciate that more than anything in the world. Furthermore, if you do want to support the cast in other ways, there is a Patreon. You can check that out at patreon.com slash horrorshots. I will be releasing very shortly some more History of Demons episodes on there. They're going to be short little tidbits. I'm thinking I'm going to call them Horror Shots Minis. Should be fun. But that is all I have for you today. I will be back next week with a little bit of a different episode. It's going to be a little bit of a special one considering the day it's going to be released. So we're going to take a small pit stop on the tour of the eerie United States. So until next week.